0: Welcome to the Sydney Film Festival Talks podcast series, Keeping It Real. This series showcases several of the filmmaker talks that were held throughout the Sydney Film Festival in June 2022. In this episode of Keeping It Real, meet the next wave of First Nation filmmakers behind the film We Are Still Here as they discuss how you go about making a film with 10 directors, two countries, and a pandemic.
1: Enjoy, it's really interesting.
2: Thank you for bearing with us as we got seated. As you can see, we are joined by quite a few of the filmmakers from the film We Are Still Here to have this panel on First Nations Next Wave. Before we begin, I'd like to pay respects to the Gadigal people whose land we meet on today and pay reference to Uncle Alan Madden, who gave us a wonderful welcome at the opening night. If you were there, it was wonderful to be received so warmly by him. I'm Laurie Brannigan-Onato. I have had the joy of seeing this film in development and I'm so happy to bring this discussion to you. And I'd also like to welcome my co-moderator... And um, would you like to introduce yourself and the team today? Uh, te Nakotokatua,
1: uh, he tui atahi mifako kina mihii uh, kina iwi taki taki o te fenua kia koto rai e haramayana mai ana ki te fa korongo mitiro tinara te, te tira fa o te rangatira watu kaitokatua. So my name is Karen Teo Kahurangi Waka, and I am Tairawhau tohurangi a Tawhai ao toforetua. Ngāti are my tribes in New Zealand, Aotearoa, and I work with the New Zealand Film Commission. And we were responsible for the experiment that is this movie. I also just wanted to pay acknowledgement first to the people of the land and also to the organisers of the Sydney Film Festival and also Screen Australia and all of our other partners that have made this film possible. And of course, especially to our wonderful filmmakers here that have brought this film to fruition. Can we please get a round of applause for these wonderful people? We've got a little bit of a plan, so please bear with us as we pass the microphone around. Um, We started this journey together. It was set up as something that was a bit of a, as I said, an experiment to bring four Aboriginal teams together, emerging writer-director teams, from Australia and three Māori and one Pacific Island, Samoan team from Aotearoa, New Zealand, to basically bring together a film in response to what was then the 250 year commemorations of Captain Cook. And as we know that when we bring our Indigenous people together, we reset what it is that the expectation is. And so, from that point on, once we got the producers involved, and we, that went through a selection process, and then we brought the teams together. That's how this film started back in 2019, I think it was. Someone's great idea. So, I'd like to introduce our three producers first, and then Laurie's going to just ask them a few questions. So. Tēnā koe Mia.
3: Um, tēnā tātou, uh, ko ai au, uh, hiuri no te Tai Tokerau, no ngā iwi o Ngātikahu ki Whangaroa, Te Ngati Ngātikuri. Uh, ko Mia Maramahinui tēne Teneaho. Uh, my name is Mia. I am from New Zealand, obviously. My family are from the northern tribes, right in the far north of Aotearoa. And I am um, one of the co-producers of We Are Still Here.
4: Hey, um, I'm Mitchell Stanley. I'm a Wiradjuri man with my people coming from Wellington, New South Wales, out near Dubbo, uh, but born and bred in Erskineville and also one of the co producers.
5: Um, I'm Tony Stowers. I'm Tainui and Salmon, and and I'm one of the producers. Thank you for introducing yourselves. Tony, I'll start with
2: you. Apologies. You are holding the mic. Okay. <laughs> um, but I wanted to get a sense and to give, you know, the audience uh, a little bit of insight to this journey. Where did this begin? Where, how was this incepted?
5: So it actually beg- began with NZFC and Screen Australia's Indigenous Department as an initiative, as a right of reply to the 250th celebrations that were happening around on the t- in the two countries about Cook's arrival in the region. This was a response from the filmmaking community. It was an Indigenous response and we, so that's how it began and we joined by applying to the initiative because we wanted it. We wanted to be a part of this momentous event, to be a part of this big team and to be able to have a voice in those celebrations commemorations
2: yeah <laughs> I I think I think I think a lot of the tone has changed since yeah. we first started this journey it's been quite a few years and a lot of those celebrations kind of got tanked thankfully yeah. um I, I kind of want to hear from you now Mia what was it like when you first met because you my understanding is you hadn't worked with these producers previously is that correct
3: That is correct. I've never worked with any Australians before. (laughs) Um, I know all of the New Zealand filmmakers. Um, I grew up in a family of filmmakers, so um, we've all... Cross paths over the years and I was fortunate to be brought on this um, project and, you know, it was really great to meet Mitch and Tony. We're all proudly Indigenous and emerging as well, well, speaking for myself, so we're on the same career path of trying to maximise the opportunity as well as work with interesting people.
2: And I think it's all come together beautifully, even though previously the two arms of filmmakers hadn't worked together, which I think is amazing. Mitch, I'm curious to hear from you from the origins of this story you know it, it has been through two governments um it's been through two heads of the first nations department at Green australia um how has the film changed since its intent do you think that you've and the filmmakers have made the film that you had intended back in 2019
4: uh i don't think we knew what we wanted to make back in 2019 <laughs> um it gone through three development processes with the filmmakers um, and then another two or three with the script editors uh, and executive producers so it had dramatically changed and especially from selecting the filmmaking teams uh with what they had initially submitted to screen australia and nzfc all of that had changed as well not all um some of them still remain the same but um, there was a rigorous scripting process and then development and then production and post-production process. So what we set out to achieve and what we actually achieved maybe two different things.
2: Thank you so much for that insight, Mitch. I'd, I'd really like to turn to the writer-directors now, and we are fortunate to have two on the Australian Aboriginal side. Uh, we have Dina Curtis and Tracy Rigney. Dina, I might have you... In- <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of love in this team. <laughs> Dina, I might have you introduce yourself and your mob to the audience. Uh, my name is
6: Dina Curtis, and I am a Warramonga Walpuri uh, and Arunda woman from Central Australia, so a proper desert breed. Um, I do live in Brisbane,
2: though. Ooh, Brisbane. Mm. Uh, Tracy, I'll have you introduce yourself and your mob.
7: Hey, everybody. Um, my name is Tracy Rigney. I'm a Wajabalik and Naranjeri woman, and I am based in Wachagachika, uh, also known as Dimbola in Victoria.
2: Beautiful. Tracy. you have the mic, so I'll, I'll move to you first. Thanks, Larry. I know, I'm so kind. I'm really interested to hear about the process from you. I know that you had a journey with your original script to what you produced. How was that journey for you?
7: My journey... <laughs> changed a lot I can't even it was that long ago it's a bit of a blur but I think I submitted maybe two ideas and I think when we got into the room and we're talking about what this film could be I think I scrapped those ideas and completely changed and based my story more around Captain Cook's Cottage in Melbourne I don't know I just had this feeling that I wanted to include that somehow and then from there, I kind of then, like initially I wanted to do something, like I live on a, a street, sorry, this is how my brain works. I live on a street that is named after a man who actually participated in the massacres of my mother's people. And so I kind of wanted to make a statement towards um, something, you know, kind of wanting to de- deface public things that are in honour of people such as that man but I was like well maybe that's a bit cliched so then I kind of thought about wanting to to incorporate graffiti as a way for my character to express herself and make her statements that way so yeah it was kind of like for me like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle and I had to kind of just fit pieces together but look my journey was up and down and up and down i also had a little child that i kind of you know dragged around with me my family so i'm really grateful that you know the producers um and the team were really supportive of me being a mother as well so yeah my journey was a roller coaster ride but i'm glad i persevered and i'm really proud of what we've done and what we've achieved
2: No, thank you. Thank you for talking about that. And um, I mean, if you haven't seen the film, Tracy's is beautiful and features incredible street art. I highly recommend watching the film.
7: Sorry, Dina just was like, What's your film called? I'm like, It's okay, it's rebel art. And I think for me as well, I wanted to um, incorporate really staunch. Aboriginal women in my film because I've always made films about men and shame job on me for not representing my, my sisters on screen so yeah Beautiful I can feel it in, in, in the work Dina I'm
2: going to go over to you now I would also love to hear about the journey that this initiative took you on how did your film change from script into production?
6: Not a lot really <laughs> Um, how my brain works a little bit different to Tracy's. So they had put a call out to filmmakers to submit a script or a story idea for, you know, to be selected to go, to make this anthology. And for weeks I was like, oh, I think I want to do like a Western or maybe a ghost story or, you know, something like this or maybe that. And it took me, um, I couldn't think of anything, so I was like, oh, well, I won't do it. And then 8 o'clock the morning of the deadline, I came up with an idea. So I spent the next 14 hours just like, okay, sending it to people going, does that make sense? And they go, yeah, that's great. Okay. So I just sent it through and, you know, thankfully it got selected. But, yeah, I think throughout the process of development it kind of didn't really change very much. Yeah, which was a good thing, I think. And then also I kind of got a little bit paranoid because everybody was going through such a journey in developing their stories. I was like, shit, maybe mine, maybe mine's a bit boring. I don't know what's going on. So anyway, so it was really good um, you know, to just be a part of in the room and just talking with everybody and I think what was really special about our development workshops is that we were all very supportive of each other, but we were also able to be very honest and give honest feedback about each other's stories and stuff. So that was um Uh, You know, I really enjoyed that process, considering we were complete strangers to start with. But then, you know, by the end of the film, what you see in the feature now is probably half of my story. There's a lot of walking around the bush and stuff. So, you know, we kind of just pulled out the guts of it. And I think, you know, the, the initial message that I wanted to say in my film is still there. And so, yeah, it was great.
2: And for the audience who don't know, what which one was your film and what was its name? Um,
6: so my chapter's called Woke and it's set in Central Australia on um, Aranda country in 1859 and it's also, it, you know, it's spoken in Eastern Aranda, Central Aranda language and that was very important to me because that's my grandfather's country. And, yeah, and so it's about... Um, Aboriginal man taking um, this explorer back to where he needs to know, not where he wants to go.
2: I love it. It's beautiful. And I I love the inclusion of country and language. I think that was really strong in the piece. Uh, We are unfortunately missing two of the teams on the Australian arm. So I'd like to um, ask the producers to kind of speak about a few of those. One of them is Danielle McLean's. And for those in the audience who watch the film, it is the animation segment. And um, I'm, I'm curious if you could speak to you may not be able to how was that process of of animation and and how did that fit within the the overall discussion?
5: Sure um so the writer director of the animation Lured is Danielle McLean and the animators that she works with is Dan Hartney and Honey Bollinger so they're all Darwin based uh, filmmakers they and this is Speaking without Danielle here or having spoken to her about this, but through the process of development, Luid was about a, a kinship. It was about connection to culture and family, and the journeys that we all go on, and being connected to to each other forever. Choosing an animation, I guess, speaking on a producer side, was a big. Um, Was a big thing because it it works in a different way. It develops, the story develops, and the craft develops at a different pace. Uh, I, you know, I think we can all uh, agree that it was bold of Danielle to bring in an animation and to a short film animation and to do it within the budget that was originally set of the initiative. I, you, you know, she just she had an idea, she wanted to, and she saw the vision of how she wanted it to come about. It was different amongst all our filmmakers. Uh, So that, yeah, it was a, it was a really great piece to have a part of us.
2: And I think it worked really well to bring the other pieces together and, yeah, it was absolutely stunning. Um, Mitch, I might hear from you about uh, Bet Cole and Sam Nuggan Painter's uh, piece um, and, you know, for the audience, that one changed quite dramatically from its early development stage. Could you speak to that?
4: Yeah, um, from memory because it feels so long ago. Uh, like Tracy, I think they come in. Am I in saying this? Their idea was not even that. It was absolutely different. And through the writing workshops, um, they had changed the idea to work within the bigger, you know, collective of narrative of the feature, um, but still wanted to write something that was true to them. And being from Alice Springs, and again, I'm talking on their behalf, but this is from, you know, my knowledge of working with them, um, they, they set out to do a comedy on something that was quite dark um, and... Uh, I, Dina, you're, you lived in LS quite a lot. It was horror originally. A boat. It was on a boat. Originally, it was a boat, but then when it changed to bottle shop, they wanted yeah. to talk to the, the horrors of just being a black fella going into a bottle store and being ID'd before you even walk in. Um, and a lot of people, you know, kind of think, oh, that happened in 1970. And it still happens today and it's just unfair. So they wanted to uh, showcase that story of the treatment of Aboriginal people in Central Australia to the rest of the world, which is unbelievable. And it was even shooting there, doing it, um, being on set was horrifying in a way. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a, it's a new world, but.
2: But they did an excellent job of bringing it together, and you, as the producing team, um, thank you to the Australian arm of filmmakers for giving us an amazing insight into that um, arm of the of the feature film. I'd like to hand over to um, our Aotearoa side to talk about the film and their process. Uh, I'm going to ask um,
1: Mickey actually to start. Uh, Because I know he kind of likes to go last and then he'll, you know, yay, we'll run out of time. Uh, So I know the bro.
8: That's why I sat here. I
1: know, I know that. So, Mickey, just give us a rundown of your original idea that you came in. What was the story? And I guess, what was the message behind what you were, you and Mario? your team
8: yeah so I'm one half of the directing team for the uniform my directing partner couldn't be here his name's Mario Ngawa and our script was pretty much the same the whole way through right from the outset I think we went to the first workshop and told everyone are we ready to shoot now (laughs) um and so it didn't really change much from that, but the, what was really good was the group really embraced the story and the idea right from the beginning and sort of gave us confidence to just go ahead and do this story. The uniform is sort of about identity and loss of identity, which is sort of something I think all immigrants from the Pacific go through when they are forced to kind of, not forced, but have to grow up and live in another country. And so when we looked at it, it was like, oh, okay, can you guys do a story? Can you um, represent the Pacific? And- just like we do, we put it in Gallipoli. So, um, which doesn't really represent the Pacific that much at all. But it was just that concept of throwing things to each other actually happened in Gallipoli. I'd read about that and just thought that was such an amazing idea. And, you know, in, in a place like that, the soldiers, even though they're out there and they're. Going through all of this sort of mayhem and violence and destruction, they're actually able to find some love and kindness in this place, and, and throw gifts back and forth. And from our culture, there's a, there's a really strong belief in the giving of gifts, giving of mealofa and and respecting those that um that you come into contact with so we felt sort of a connection with that part of it and so we just structured our story around that we want to do something sort of entertaining and really simple and and take people on sort of this really simple journey but have some heart at the end of it you know one of the things that our character has to do is he sort of sheds his old skin he always sort of sheds this idea of the uniform he's wearing obviously and and puts on another one once he finds a connection with that and so we like to think of the turkish side as representative of the tangata whenua of where we grew up we sort of see them as the maori side and it's because we find a real connection a spiritual connection to the maori people of the land that we've been able to grow up in ourselves and had the pleasure of growing up in ourselves so You know, when he goes over to this other side and he sees a group of people who are fighting for their people, for their families, and for the piece of dirt that they're fighting on, he can find connection with that. And I think that's sort of symbolic of us as a people, as a Samoan people, seeing the struggle that our brothers and sisters up here have to go through. So really, it's a love letter to the um, our brothers and sisters (laughs) that are up here.
1: (laughs) Great sell there. Great sell there, Mickey. I mean, there was a couple of films, one on the Australians within, you know, the, the bottle store with, that had a romantic sort of tone and a little bit of comedy. And definitely the, the uniform brought that other, that was, I heard laughter in the audience. Mm. Um, and there were some really solemn parts that really brought back, I think, moments for a lot of other people, both, you know, indigenous and those of our, our other, you know, Pākehā, palangi, Farno that also related. To losing people in war and what some of those consequences were so tēnā Renee can I come to you now because yours was very much around um, some other things that we know about which was the fight and the battle that we have in a contemporary sense mm-hmm. and in a place can you talk to us about your story and I guess what was the impetus behind that Sure,
9: Kilda ora and Budgi um, Kamara I just learnt that um, which is the Gadigal, um hello um, so I just wanted to say that on Gadigal land budgiri um, Kamara. No, I'm rolling my R's. Yeah, so I'm Ngapuhi from the far north of um, Aotearoa. We say that our North Island is the fish of Maui. He pulled up that fish. The top part is the tail. The bottom um, part is the head. The middle part, you know, is the puku or the belly. And so I come from Uh, around the belly, uh, which is Te uh, like Kaz and Richard and Tim, and also the Far North. So my film, I guess, the inspiration around it, there were so many inspirations with this film. A friend of mine, Rob Tewhare, originally came to Australia, to Brisbane in 1982 to the Commonwealth Games, and he was a young uh, man at the time. Uh, his father was a famous New Zealand writer and poet, and he came looking for him at one stage. And he wound up on the front lines uh, with all of the Aboriginal people down there fighting against, you know, explicit racist um, laws that prohibited Aboriginal people from gathering. And he wound up imprisoned overnight with all the Aboriginal freedom fighters. And he came to a writer's group that I founded in about 2008 in Auckland. I was originally a playwright and he told this story and I said to him, you know, it's just such a wonderful story. It was a story of resilience, of brotherhood in a place of isolation where you had every reason to be angry, but within that space, uh, they celebrated the fact that they had been seen by the eyes of the world and he was really well looked after. And I promised him that one day I'd tell that story. And so actually I submitted that concept to the New Zealand Film Commission, which was a Maori, young Maori man who went to Australia. But as the process unraveled, we realised that in the weight and balance of things, um, we weren't going to have as much Māori representation on screen. And so um, Mia and, um, you know, and Bailey at the time talked to me about, you know, perhaps setting it in Aotearoa. And I I grabbed onto that really quickly because also – my own family had grown up and been a part of the protest movement um, within Aotearoa, my um, elder character, mine is the protest film in the 1980s, by the way, um, and it winds up in a, in a prison. Uh, Willie Wilson is based on my uh, great uncle, uh, who was at the front lines of the New Zealand Land March and also the Springboks tour, and also another pivotal um, protest in New Zealand in the nineteen eighties. And I really wanted to pay, pay homage to the freedom fighting that they did for us to have our treaty recognised um, in the nineteen seventies and eighties, and I wanted to also talk to the trauma of anger. So it was actually a really complex piece. And there's there's a lot of, uh, within the cut, there's a bit of levity missing from it because of time, you know, um, but that's fine. Uh, however, yeah, the, the film itself in the simplest form is the story of a young man who travels in search of his father and at a crucial part in his life, he can either step and be embraced by um, the wrong People Or the right people. And coincidentally, he finds, you know, family within uh, this group of uh, protesters and this elder man. So it's about disconnection. I wanted to talk to my own cousin's experience of being Māori, but being Australian born and feeling a sense of disconnection and shame about um, culture and knowing that a lot of Aboriginal Indigenous people around the world have that same sense of isolation. And uh, I also wanted to um, ensure that every person who felt that way knew that you, they weren't alone and that no matter where you go, your ancestors and your tupuna, they follow you and they're with you, guiding you along. So
1: I noticed that one of the things, I ora, Ai, kome te pake pake. one of the other things that was in your particular story was the reference to the ruru.
9: Do you want to just speak to that and the, the references of tohu or signs yes, to absolutely. us? absolutely. So my family are very, um, I've got two families, my far north family, very spiritual, Māori and um, Kaz and my family because we're um, relations, very political. I spend a lot of time in the far north at the fish and my family um, look at uh, nature and life as tohu or signs and so I learnt very young through my uh, grandmother how to read the signs of nature and particularly birds and manu and specifically the ruru and so the ruru first featured in my life which is the more pork owl when i was about 15 years old and as maori we know that it is a messenger bird from our you know our ancestors or spirits and that it um, can bring comfort. It can also um, bring warning. And I've had that experience. Um, when I was 15, it brought a warning of death and I had a death next to me um, that very next night. And so I've walked very closely with the ruru, the more pork throughout my entire life. And actually uh, it features in all of my work and my plays and most of my films actually I do bring that important manu or um, tohu sign into into the work because it means something to me and you know I really wanted to ensure that we were representing our animal spirits because all of us here uh, in our cultures and our tribes have connection to animal and so bringing the ruru in was crucial the, the film was actually called the bull in the ruru Willie Wilson represented also the Spirit of the Ruru, which is that wise old owl that's there to support you in times of need. I was really happy that actually Richard was able to give us and gift us the footage of the Ruru because it is a protected um, burden, Aotearoa, and so we were able to have that visual representation of it in the film.
1: Um, Chantel Nainé. We just, um, if you'd like to introduce yourself and just talk to your story, which one it was, what the name was, Mm -hmm. and just some of the insight in terms of your storytelling.
0: Hi, everyone. Um, My name's Chantal Burgoyne. I am Afakasi Samon and German, Scottish, uh, with ancestral Tongan heritage on my mother's side and New Zealand Pakeha on my father's side. And he was um, adopted and raised by a Maori mother who was Napuhi from the North as well. And the film that I directed was, it's called Blankets, and it's the film that's set in the future. And it was written by Tereroa Rewati, who unfortunately couldn't be here. And the world has been the same in a way ever since we first met and that it was always set in the future. And Tereroa had, she uh, she ta- referenced the past and. the the way that trade was played out when the colonizers came to, you know, to our lands and there was such unfair terms of trade in so many ways. And one of the elements was blankets. They were traded and often they were disease infested. Um, so they brought sickness with them as well. And so that was a big reference for the future. Where something has happened, where there's a climate crisis and we're now in a very frozen future world and people now, um, they both wear blankets, which are precious and keep you warm, but also that's also a form of currency and, um, it's a new form of trade rather than monetary trade. And it was this really kind of incredible and buzzy concept and I hadn't done anything that was genre-based because a lot of my work's been very much in the contemporary dramatic space and so it really um, was quite an exciting challenge for me to try and think of, okay, what, how can we do that? And originally it was supposed to be an open air market on top of a mountain that was covered in snow and there's going to be an avalanche <laughs> and, and it was like... Uh, I don't know if we can do that. So, like, I had a lot of, I also referenced the past for it in that I looked at what a lot of Indigenous communities who did um, grow up in very cold, very freezing climates, um, the way that they dressed, the way that they lived. So I looked at a lot of nomadic tribes and Mongolia and um, sort of, that kind of um, way of living and then I also looked at um, the references to Māori in New Zealand as well and and I had a conversation with somebody um, who put me onto the idea of actually going underground which I really, really just really responded to because we have these tunnels in Auckland that were like where we actually shot was in Devonport and they um, the tunnels there were built first in response to Seeing Russian warships um, out sort of far off in, in the distance, they were built in the 1800s. And then that space has also continued to be, you know, a space where different kind of periods of that military threat came in. I think there was the Japanese, the Germans, you know, during the war, but... We also discovered when we shot there that a lot of uh, Niuean soldiers were brought there before being sent to war as well. That's where they trained. So it was kind of a spooky coincidence. And I thought also it related to the war aspect um, in Mickey and Mario's film and also, you know, the war aspect you guys as well. But um, at the heart of the film, though, was this story about this young girl and her grandfather and her grandfather is clearly, he doesn't have much longer to live in this world and he's the only person that's been um, raising her and they've had to be in survival mode and he's guided her and he's taught her as much as he can but she's only eight years old and he's trying to give her as much knowledge as he can but, you know, the tragedy of it is that you know that he won't be there and she is going to have to go out on her own and survive and I really loved the idea within it around continuance and resilience, and that um, passing on from one generation to the next, and having this young girl know who she is, know where she came from, and taking that forward into the future with her. There was a quote right from the beginning um, that was in my mind when we all gathered in Kangaroo Valley, which I unfortunately don't know who originally said it because I actually think no one quite knows, but it was from a protest kind of chant and it was, they tried to bury us, they didn't know we were seeds. And so for me, that's always been something I carried in my mind for our entire film, but also in particular for Blankets, because for me, this little girl, Kōtiro, she was a seed and she is going to go into the future and she's going to continue. So...
1: Yeah. Thank you, that was really you covered all the ground that I was gonna ask. And now we're gonna cross over to Tim and Richard, whose film
9: was
10: Tēnā tātou e te whanau, um Tūtahi kai te mihi atuki a i tēnei pō, ko ai tēnei e kōrero atūnei, ko Tim Worrell ahau, he uri o Pōtiki, no te o te waimana. My name's Tim Warrell. I'm from uh, the Ngai Tūhoe tribe in the central plateau of um, New Zealand and I'm one of the co-produce, uh, co-director, co-writers of our chapter which was Te Pūru, which is the Chapter set in 1864 in our area of Te Urawera, a large forested area um, in Land Bay of Plenty uh, and dealt with a real moment in our history where we uh, as a iwi came together to debate whether to enter the war against the invading British Imperial Army. Kia
11: ora. Uh, Kia ora koutou. Um, My name's Richard, I'm co-writer-director with Tim. Um, uh, We, I guess we'll talk about how we came up with the film. As we, and I think the producers might have something to say when we first turned up at um, Shark Valley because we came up with a few ideas and each session we had we would throw down another one (laughs) and then we'd, oh, hang on, we'll we'll pull that off and throw another one down say... we did have it was it was a it was a big um, process for us, and I think we actually used the collective to help us decide uh, what story we would do. Um, we had some that was similar to some of the others, so we didn't want to cover the same sort of ground. So if, essentially, after the weekend, we finally came up with the film that we were doing. Tell
1: me about the significance of it's called te Puru which is the bull. But tell me the significance in terms of having this particular story
11: told. Actually, Te puru is comes from. Uh, Tim's tribe Tuhoi, so he's probably best to speak to to that. Um, so for those of you who have seen the
10: film, Te Puru uh, means the bull It's uh, the haka that's performed in the film. It's also basically the national anthem of our tribe, of my tribe, and we perform it at tangihana at our funeral, uh, funerary processes. We perform it externally at large gatherings. Um, So it's a a critical part of our identity. What a lot of our, even our own, don't realise is the origin of that, that haka, which was that it This gathering, which is represented in our film in 1864, it was composed and used by one of our ancestors in order to inspire our tribe to go and support the tribes of Waikato, further north. To resist the invasion, and that, and and the metaphors contained within the haka, which is this image of the British Imperial Army coming forward and eating everything in front of it, just like a huge bull, and leaving only death in its way. It's
1: positive.
11: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Quite a contrast. Tasty, yeah, yeah, Quite a contrast to the levity in the uniform, and yet there were still elements, I think, within your story that. I mean, for many, we'll we'll be familiar with, I guess, some of the imagery uh, of Māori within your story. But it was also probably a big thing to coordinate because it was one of the ones that had quite a lot of extras. How did you manage that, bringing that story with iwi complexities, shall we say, and yet still bringing it together in a way that, you know, you had quite a volume of crew and cast.
10: So yeah, big undertaking. Um, I, I suppose just for answering that question too, I, I, I just to talk to why this story, and it was really around getting to talk about our ancestors, about our experience of colonisation, not just as receivers and victims of it, but actually in ways that were proactive, strategic, passionate informed intelligent and aspirational so that was just a touch on that the logistics so of course two weeks we'd always planned to be filming on (laughs) on country uh close to the um place of the real world event with the support of our our tribe around us Um, and Because of this beautiful gift that has been given to us for the last two years of COVID that all came crashing down with about two weeks to film. Um, and lots of fraught conversations with producers and tears and threats. (laughs) 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 However, we and, and we didn't feel that we could, we could not shoot it there and take it up to Auckland. So, but we did go back to our. Uh, leaders in our tribe and the descendants of those ancestors, and said, This is the, this is it. we're, we're going to pull the plug. And they said, They had, they had Hui and came back to us and said, No, this is too important. We will come up to Auckland. So we had an amazing response from within our tribe who were committed to it and, and traveled up and, and it happened.
2: Were you
1: happy with the final product?
11: It, yeah, it was. It was a big process, but I, I really, just touching on what Tim had said, it was the iwi or tuhoi that really brought the life to this project. If they did not agree to change location, and they came up in force. Um, and remember, the, this is an iwi who's who's inland and in, in, down on uh, the Bay of Plenty, and we're up in Auckland, so it's a, a different whenu, a different land. But they came up in mass, and and they totally committed to the film so in that way it became easy even though we had had all these issues logistics um stuff like that but i yeah i do i think we owe a lot of thanks to the tuhoi and i think that when you see the performance on the screen you know yes we are making drama we are acting but some of those scenes because they were historically real world context when they performed the haka the Weda, when the women were as the survivors came back their tears they're real, and I don't think there was a dry eye on the set when we were filming that. Um, even now, it's, I can still feel the significance of those performances. So, uh,
10: I, I think just the other thing to acknowledge too is to Kawito Maki, who are the the um, guardians and custodians of the land that we ended up filming on, who who uh, liaised and then allowed us to to make that oputao for for a week. Tēnā
1: kautau. Tēnā kautau aotearoa tangata. I'm going to come back now to our producers and ask a couple of questions and pass it over to, to Laurie but I just want to acknowledge that you know, on the New Zealand side we brought through the citizenship and the fighting alongside many other countries through the war. We brought the elements of protest. We brought the futuristic conceptions of those things in trading and yet the value of our taonga or our treasures and then right through to the historical context of where many of our people have started with the tuhoi story. So that was the the, the gifts that had been brought into this this particular um, film from Aotearoa alongside those of Lurid with the animation, with Woke again bringing historical concepts of – the decimation and the genocide to the people, um, you know, to the different tribal groupings here. And then rebel art, which is again in a, a sort of more contemporary expression of the colonisation that happened. And then the bottle store, which actually is still the remnants of that colonisation in real-day life. So no koto katoa, mō koto nei So just really acknowledging all of the stories that have brought together and the voices that have come together in this film. Hōmai te paki.
2: Thank you. I I want to take it all the way back a little bit. In 2019, I think the initiative was called Cook Our Right of Reply. It's moved dramatically from that point and we have the title now, We Are Still Here. Could you talk to how that title came to be, any of the producers?
4: How did it come, Renee? <laughs>
9: that, I, well, I do it because I remember it. Um,
2: You asked us all to
9: write down a bunch of... Things and I don't know if she's wearing it, but my partner, she is um, First Nations Native American, Canadian. And at the time, I was living in Canada. And the one thing that they said up there constantly is, We are still here. We are a remnant of the 1% who survived the genocides of our people. And that really stayed with me in that land the resilience of their people to endure widespread genocide. And so when we all were asked to write down several titles, that was one of the titles that I wrote down. We're still
2: here. Thank you. Mitch, I wonder if you can talk us through the move away from Cook.
4: None of the filmmakers wanted to talk about him, so we didn't. Um, (laughs) Our history, uh, you know, goes back tens of thousands of years and so does our culture um, on the the Aboriginal side, on the Australian side. And this was a moment for us to, uh, you know, pay homage and talk about our mob because... You know, the, the celebrations of the arrival of the colony was plastered everywhere. Um, so this was our space, uh, it was without that influence. So, I mean, you and Karen, you, we were all there. I think in the, it was one of the first conversations. I was like, what do we do? It was like, definitely not that. <laughs> so yeah, that was out the door real quick.
2: No, I I love, I love the way that moved. I'm going to hand over to you, Tao. So the other
1: thing that came about was the discussion when it first was called out was about a portmanteau or doing an anthology bringing, you know, the four teams from Australia, three Māori teams and a. Pacific Island or Samoan team together, and then how once we got all the stories uh, together, and again part of the development was how it should look, how we should tell that story. There's many examples both in different countries around how they can look when they come together as an anthology. Uh, Mia, do you want to talk about the choice to make it an interwoven story versus maybe a more linear?
3: We have lots of examples of um, anthology films that we referenced. Waru and Vai are both wahine-driven, women-driven films that have um, vignette, if you haven't seen it. And they're beautiful films, but we wanted to try and do something a little bit different, something that was bold and unique. We've discovered throughout our development processes that all of the stories that we were telling basically covered the same thing. We were talking about survival and resilience and so using that as a thread, we just thought, how can we chop this thing up and make it different? And, um, we intentionally decided that and chopped up our script. You know, the directors have given, had given their trust and um, their grace to let us do that because I'm sure, you know, if you're a creative, it's really scary thing to submit your control over something. So thank you all very much for, for allowing us to, to try that experiment and um, we're now seeing the fruits of that labour.
1: So while we're talking about the interwoven of the stories, the other thing was around the interweaving, I guess, of the rights or the obligations, I guess, back to our own voices in our own communities. Do you want to just mention, I guess, anything in particular about how it is that you've shared the mana or the authority of the stories with, as producers and the teams?
5: I guess the way that we did it was it was a lot of communication. It was back and forth. It was, you know, trying to create time and space for each other because they were cut up and not in their original form. So it's about asking if these stories fit together in, in these sequences and through development it didn't always work because it was a scripting process and, you know, we've got eight film teams that we have to collaborate with and um, and it was about trying to find, I guess, the energy that flows through each film, the themes that go through it and, you know, it is just about, it was about trust and that each of them, each of our filmmakers gave us that, it, all of us gave each other that space to do that and to kind of believe and saying I think this chapter kind of fits here and or this message you know that might actually be a bit better at the top and it's about the weight of that. So it was—it was a lot of Zooms, a lot of phone calls, and even phone calls amongst you know just smaller groups, and you know, and trying to get us all together. We just had to talk a lot. I'm sure nobody wanted to talk uh, to to us about it, but that—that's what it was. It was—we just had to talk it through and and try to find that balance and and the energy that th- flows through the film.
1: And in the end, because of COVID we got stuck between two countries. We couldn't actually cross over, which would, had begun the way that we had intended is that we'd go between the two yep. countries mm-hmm. and Wānanga will workshop a lot of this. So in the end, how was it that you managed to get the post-production done?
4: I was just I was just going to say, but it, it doesn't go without saying that each filmmaker made a sacrifice. And so, you know, the thanks to them, you know, it, it and it started – at the scripting stage, uh, and it wasn't just in post, but I will get to it, you know, we got to give thanks to Louise Goff, Grace Breyer-Smith and Todd Karihana, uh, who had come through the whole process of scripting, checking back with the filmmakers and then, you know, producing it, shooting it, and then landing in the edit with the amazing Roland, Roland Gower as the editor uh, and montage director, Bette Cole, which was a big burden to ask someone. I, I think... They were just as scared of taking on someone else's chapter and having to cut into it, um, you know, Beck being quite an experienced director as well, as all of them, but it was a trust thing that worked both ways through the whole process and everyone had to work as a team, so from beginning to end.
1: I know we're sort of coming to a time to wrap up, but um, before I pass it back to Laurie, I really just wanted to give the producers an opportunity to say any last sort of words, Mahi, lessons, that you want to sort of share and there'll be an opportunity for people. I know we don't have a chance for questions, but you've heard all of the stories and you'll be able to have a chat with each of the the teams. So Kao koutou.
4: I mean, I'm, from my behalf, I'll hand it over, but thank you to the filmmakers. You guys are amazing. Like the trust that you put in us as producers and – us with um, the screen offices as well, thank you for your support, your unwavering support. That's it from me, I'm going to hand it over to my co-producers.
3: Yeah, um, thank you to you all, you know how much I love you, I've said it a million times. But a massive thank you, uh, and to Penny, thank you so much for your support over the last two years, it wouldn't have been possible without you, because you Bore this initiative. Um, and also to our families who have continually supported us, um, not only on this project, but on all of our projects. We are freelancers and often find ourselves in hard situations. And this particular film was a low budget film, so lots of people made sacrifices. I know my family worked for free on the film. So thank you very much to our families for supporting us. Gilda.
5: I guess, yeah, the same look. Biggest thanks to our filmmakers for the stories that they've given us and shared with us. I know that from the development that I connected with a lot of them and the history of it. So had a few tears through it. But, yeah, I would also like to thank everybody that is here today listening to us talk about our film, that also uh, came out to see it either at State Theatre or Randwick. You know, us actually get it going through this process and sharing it with everybody I think is amazing to get to this point. Uh, So thank you to you know, all of you, and the festival, <laughs> and Jenny, and the Shannon, Lisa. So, yeah, no, it is it is massive for us. So, thank you,
2: thank you, Tony. I'd also like to extend a massive thank you to the whole team. I have known you since 2019 now, so we've all changed quite a bit since then. Uh, we've seen some shit, uh, <laughs> but I think. It's absolutely incredible. It was a feat of cultural diplomacy. I feel absolutely enriched to have borne witness to just parts of it and, you know, have learned so much from Alfano from across the way. Um, so thank you all so much. And thank you to the audience for listening in today. Remember, as you walk out onto that stolen Aboriginal land that we are still here. Thank you very much.